2: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone.
3: My name is Christina Lund-Matson, and you are listening to Sorry Partner.
4: Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a weekly podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by Bridge Partners and Friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program we talk with Danish champion Christina Lund Madsen about passion and patience and hear her top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi partner. Hi partner. How are you doing, Catherine? Oh, I'm great. I've I've had a huge week, Jocelyn. This week has been the week. I finally taught my first bridge class. Can you believe it, <gasps> Teacher Catherine? <laughs> oh, that's so exciting! It was exciting. It's I I can't believe it's been all this time, and I finally taught my first class. But um. As you well know, I've been threatening to teach people how to play for years. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first group who's taken me up on it. You found some victims. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was surprised, actually. It sort of came from them. I, I'd mentioned it and this woman, you know, it's in a social group. I'm in mean, this woman was like, Oh, yeah, we should do this. I was like, Oh gosh. Who knew I didn't even have to try? <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> you mean you have friends who don't play bridge, Catherine? <laughs> I know it's quite shocking. Well, this is this was the last outpost and and I fixed that.
1: <laughs> now you've converted them. You've dragged them over to the dark side.
4: <laughs> yeah. 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 But you know, it made me so uh, appreciative of all the bridge teachers I've had in the past because I I thought I'm not going to overwhelm them. I'm pretty much going to shuffle the deal and play. I did prepare some hands, but even just preparing a few hands it's such it's a lot of work to get ready and I was thinking through how I was going to approach the lessons and you know how much of each element I wanted to tell them you know because you've got to you've got to give the students enough that it makes sense you know you've got to tell them there are points and that they're playing for something otherwise right. <laughs> what's the point of it but you don't want to overwhelm them with the bidding and, rah, rah, rah. and even honestly when I went in there even though I would on some level figured out what I was going to do I had this huge sort of if I imagine my brain with this great big cloud in the middle of this, (laughs) this concept where I wasn't, I just thought, I don't know quite how this bit's going to go, but we'll see. I was winging it, but anyway, it was great. So I taught them how to, you know, evaluate their hand and to sort their cards. And we dealt a couple and played a couple just without a trump suit. So they get the hang of that. And then I gave them a pre dealt hand that demonstrated the power of a trump. I gave one person 13 <laughs> spades in their hand. <laughs> and they were all shocked to see the two of spades, one on the, you know, the ace of hearts. And um, so they got the hang of it. It was great. And then, and, and really that took up most of the time. I, I, I mucked up one hand because I had pre-dealt a couple of hands to demonstrate a couple of basic concepts. I think actually it was, the, it was the last hand. I was like, oh, do you want another one? They're like, yeah, yeah. And I just hadn't realized. I completely mucked up the hands. So I think I, I'd given three of them like eight cards in there, and then the Declara had all the others. She'd started the hand having a huge amount of trouble organizing her hand. And I had, I had just not put it together that it was because she was holding so many cards. <laughs> she, she had half the deck. Yeah. <laughs>
1: 26 cards.
4: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was very funny. I think it went pretty well. Um, Next time we're gonna talk more about the bidding and I'll start getting into the weeds of it. But mind you, that's if anybody comes back for the next lesson. You know, a few of them are are traveling, so there's a couple of weeks before we have our next lessons. (laughs) I'll see. I'll see if any of them return. But I enjoyed it. Well,
1: that's so awesome. I'm sure you're I'm sure you're great. And I think your students are very lucky and they should absolutely take you up on your offer to teach them. It's tricky. I've taught (laughs) a ridiculous amount given that I'm not the level you would expect of someone who is teaching bridge. But I feel like as long as I'm just teaching beginners, how much harm can I do? But (laughs) it's hard because there is so much. And I think I used to throw too much at people. I remember one student saying to me, I just don't believe that this is the game that my grandmother played. <laughs> I think there's gotta be an easier way. I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is the game your grandmother played, but she might not have like, maybe she didn't learn it in two hours. So then I, then I got a bit more systematic and I've uh, leveraged the, the Audrey Grant
4: books. Oh, that's a great idea. That's a great idea.
1: And it's really, and it's good. And what's nice is that she shows you what the hands are that you should use to illustrate the points. She doesn't start with the bidding. She she sort of starts with the play of the hand. And I think that makes a lot of sense. So you did that. Yeah. But it's it's a great system. You know, some people are, when they're teaching children, they really avoid talking about the bidding, I think, for quite a while. Yeah. To make it more just fun and get the kids playing the cards.
4: Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting, you know, it was both, easier and harder than I expected it to be. In a sense, you know, it took on its own logic. So the, I think the students were really happy to just to play out the cards and they all had a ton of questions, which I hadn't anticipated. The other thing that surprised me was just the shock of realizing how much I both know and don't know that there's nothing like being asked to explain something to realize, ah, you you can know things but not know them, or you, or you know them, but it's it's different to having to formally explain them or, or express to somebody else the logic behind something. And I realize that teaching is a great way to, for yourself to learn because you're just forced to really come to terms with the very basic and fundamental logic of all these concepts. So you know, if I keep teaching, maybe I'll become a better player. <laughs> wow, that'd be great. Oh, I think for sure. I think it. I
1: think absolutely. When you need to think about how to convey the material, you think about it in such a different way than when you're just receiving it. So I, yeah, I think that, I think that's definitely true.
4: Yeah, it was eye-opening.
1: So far, I've only taught, I think like eight lessons was, was the most I've ever taught. I never have tried to teach an intermediate type of player. Although no, I was coaching that group of ladies not that long ago. And, you know, trying to get them to consider coming to play at the club, which they hadn't done. I think, you know, I think that maybe is very intimidating.
4: Yeah, I was really mindful of that, actually, when I was setting up these lessons. I know a number of people who've taken lessons for a long time with private teachers. And for some reason, they're hugely intimidated to go to the club. So I thought, I'm going to throw these people in in the deep end. I took bidding boxes and had the cards in pallets. I thought I'd just get them used to the paraphernalia and the language around it all without setting up that sense of, oh, you know, now you have to learn this extra step before you go and play at a club. I thought I'll make it very natural and just part of actually learning to play the game. And I think that's that's the right way to go. I really do because people develop, I think, an unnecessary anxiety about playing at the clubs. And it is really just because of these unfamiliar objects. So, yeah, I hope that um, once they get comfortable, they'll just happily play at a club and not have any of that resistance.
1: Yeah, all the the mechanics of it, the yeah. movements. Right. And there's some stuff that you really don't need to worry about at all, but there's other stuff that you do need to worry about that can maybe seem intimidating, although something happened pretty recently at the club. It was a Swiss teams and a friend of mine was playing on a team. You know, she and her partner were very experienced, but they were playing with two other people who were much less experienced. One in particular, um, has played very little at the club and here was a Swiss team and it was different than what she'd experienced. And my very experienced friend got the boards from the other table and shuffled them, which was absolutely threw the game into chaos and brought the director's wrath on her head. But the good side was that the inexperienced player got to see that a very experienced player can muck up the mechanics of the game. And hopefully that made the less experienced player more comfortable and not less. (laughs) Yeah. That's what my friend who felt just terrible, but she was looking on the bright side for the silver lining, for this ridiculous experience. I mean, I don't know if they even were able to play those last three boards. Stepping away for a minute to say thank you to our friend Larry Cohen, known for his keep it simple sweetheart philosophy. Check out his quizzes, practice hands, and Bridge Made Simple webinars at www.larryco.com.
4: Jocelyn, I've had a look in the mailbag, and there's a couple of related letters about beginners' experiences at the club. Would you like me to read one or two to you?
1: Oh, sure. I love those letters.
4: (laughs) Yeah, they're great. They're great. So this one is from Fiona in Sydney, and the subject line is Funny Bidding Story. She says, Hi, Catherine and Jocelyn. I have a funny story to report from a few years ago. I was playing in a congress, which is what they call a tournament in Australia. I was playing in a congress put on by my bridge club. One of the teachers at the club had enthusiastically encouraged his students from a supervised group to join in. He had explained some of the etiquette and told them not to worry, that if they couldn't understand the bidding, they could always ask the opponents to explain it when it was their turn to bid. So my partner and I were sitting with two of these ladies. As the bidding proceeded back and forth in a long, convoluted sequence, the ladies began to look more and more puzzled. Finally, one of them piped up and said, can I ask you what the bidding means, please? Fair play, you may think. The trouble was, it was their own bidding sequence they were asking <laughs> us to explain.
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> I hope you find the question as amusing as I did. Kind regards, Fiona. Fiona, that is so funny. I wish we, we could have heard from you what you said to them. That's like those people when you're asking them,
1: can you please explain their bid? And they say things like, it's a normal bid. I think it was just yesterday. I was asking for their carding agreement and they said, natural. And I said, okay, but what is your carding agreement? Is it upside down? Is it standard? Natural. What did you say? I called the director. I'm like, I need to know what your card, you know, especially was a discard that I really wanted to know what was the yeah. meaning yeah. of the jack of hearts. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Classic. Classic.
4: Well, thanks, Fiona, for sending that in. And if you happen to remember how you responded, we'd love to know. So maybe you could send that in to us as well. That'd be terrific. I have another letter for you. Yes. This one will prompt some discussion from us, I think. This is from Harvey in Israel. And Harvey writes, I am an intermediate player who recently joined an established bridge club for the first time, together with a beginner partner who has never played at a club in her life. We continue to find ourselves pressured and rushed to pick up our bidding cards before we've had the chance to assess the bidding, as our experienced opponents quickly snatch up the bidding cards with their unforgiving fingers and stuff them back into the bidding box. The same problem applies to playing our cards quickly, particularly at trick one whether as declarer planning the play or whether as defenders in the crucial first trick. Also, in reviewing the four cards played to a particular trick before turning them over, we continue to get dirty looks and snide comments. Clearly, we're still on a learning curve in terms of club play and need to literally get up to speed. My question is, how can we remedy the unnecessary pressure, both external and internal? And then he signs off, more power to you. Please continue this terrific podcast. Thanks, Harvey. Thanks,
1: Harvey. (laughs) Gosh, yeah. I mean, my experience is that really good players don't act that way. That's true. It's the people who have maybe gotten a little bit more experience than Harvey and his partner that have the least amount of patience, perhaps for beginners. Yeah, And that If you start dealing with really good players, they're not going to act like that. So I think that Harvey has to possibly just stick with it and not let it bug him because it's going to continue to happen. And then eventually it will stop happening.
4: Yeah, I think it's a bit of a rite of passage, unfortunately, because I've certainly been on the receiving end of that and it can feel so awful. And some of the players can be so unpleasant. Yeah, well, I don't think bridge players are
1: necessarily the most gracious people. But I do feel that usually the really good ones, they behave better.
4: That's true, though. I have to say, Jocelyn, I think they have to be the really good ones. I do think that there is a great portion in the middle of of players who, who can be quite threatening, mm-hmm. who can be less than kind at the table. And I think it is a bit of a problem, actually, for beginners because there is that pressure to get on with it and understand what's going on. And I think, too, once you become a more solid intermediate player, I think for a lot of people they actually forget how hard it is to start and just that a newer player needs that little extra time to understand what's happened. And it's, you know, once you know, you know. But until you're at that point, you really have to put it together. And it from the outside, it can look a little slow, but I think stronger players do need to be kinder to players who are really trying to get up to speed, as Harvey says.
1: Yeah. You know, in in fact, I think what Harvey is doing, he's probably analyzing the opening lead. He's probably trying to figure out from the bidding where the points are. He's figuring out all of the things that he's supposed to do. And that's terrific. And that's just he's just going to get more adept at doing that maybe a little quicker, but there is no shortcut to doing that. You have to do that. So I think it's great that Harvey is doing those steps and taking the time to think and not just trying to to start playing at trick one.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And if these players who are putting pressure on him and his partner want people to continue to come to the clubs and play, then they're just going to have to pull their heads in and behave. I was at a tournament a couple of years ago and we were playing against this pair. They were just so unbelievably horrible. One of them actually <laughs> reduced my partner to tears. And then you'll love this. It's a double whammy. First, I found out that he was a psychologist oh, and that God. was his job. No. But then just to add to that, he actually had some formal role where he was there to make people feel good. And if something went wrong, they were meant to come and tell him, I think because he was a psychologist. There's my partner outside bowling. And I'm like, do you want me to go and complain? Do you want me to do something about this? What do you want me to do? I mean, she barely finished the tournament. She was so upset because of the morale officer. So way to go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, those were great letters. Thank you so much to Fiona and to Harvey. And if you have any fun stories about when you were learning to play bridge and maybe your early experiences at a club, please do send them to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram, or you can leave us a voice message at www.speakpipe.com slash sorrypartnerpodcast. That link is also in the show notes, along with some other good stuff.
4: Coming up next, our interview with Christina Lund Madsen.
1: Danish champion Christina Lund brings athletic endurance to her presence at the table. She has won four Danish championships, two European Mixed Teams championships, a North American Bridge championship, and bronze at the World Bridge Series Mixed Teams. She has many interests outside of bridge, including journalism and writing and running marathons. We began by asking about her first memory of the game.
3: First memory of bridge was while growing up, listening to my parents and my grandparents play bridge. Children were not allowed, but I was allowed to shuffle. So I tried to shuffle and deal the cards, which was perfect for them. And then sometimes, you know, when I went in there and they sat there with their cognacs and what they did, then if somebody went to the bathroom, I could play dummy. And I always had to try to guess whether the tricks would be placed vertically or horizontally. So that was how I was introduced to bridge by watching my parents and grandparents play it. Then my parents taught me and my younger sister bridge when we were like, I think we were eight and 10. Bidding was quickly my thing. My sister, she was more talented in the card play, but my parents were not expert players. So there was sort of
1: a limit to how much they could teach us. And so when was it? that you realize that you and Bridge were made for each other? I wouldn't say that Bridge
3: and I were made for each other. It was more I who fell in love with the game. I don't know if Bridge loves me as much as I love Bridge, but in 2001, I hadn't played Bridge for for some years. I was a teenager with other things to do. And then somebody forced me to go to a junior pair championship in Denmark for a weekend with a girl my own age. I'd never met her before. And I said, yes. Because I was bored and I thought, why not do something to distract me in my boring life? So I went to this camp and I was thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do? An entire weekend with a bunch of geeks. And then I met some of the most interesting and funny and intelligent and amazing people that I'd never expected to meet. Some of them I'm still friends with. And after that weekend, I was very hooked. And a few months later, there was a junior bridge cab in Poland, and I decided to go. Also a little bit because I was hoping somebody else might be going. One of the boys (laughs) I'd met at the Danish cab. Of course, he didn't, which was fairly disappointing. And I remember standing under, there's this flock at the central station in Copenhagen, and I saw the others, and I was thinking, oh, my God, what am I doing here? Twelve days in Poland with these people. (laughs) Of course, one of them became my future, well, actually my current female partner and my very close friend. And it's what it is. But at the time she was 16 and I was 21 and I thought it was very cool. A little too cool for them. (laughs) Anyway, so I went to the junior bridge camp in Poland. And here I met players from all over the world, all the same age. You know, when you're junior, you're less than 25. And I just had, I want to say the time of my life, but that's not true because I've had that so many times since because of bridge Thank you for to Bridge for giving me all these amazing experiences. But after the camp in Poland, uh, we were quite happy not to be last. And I got really hooked with the game. It wasn't just the social thing. At some point, I also became ambitious. I don't know really when it started. It was sneaking up on me slowly. Sometimes people ask me, because now I'm actually a full-time professional Bridge player. When did you decide to become a Bridge player? And I think for many of us, maybe most of us, it's not something we decide. It's something that happens to us. And it was the same for my part. I got divorced at a rather young age. I was only 33, I think, with two young children, three and four. And uh, I thought to myself, what What should I do with my life now? Because I was sort of starting everything from scratch, you know, like, where was I going to live? Which furniture in my house? All these things. and I decided that I wanted to do something that would make me happy. So I wanted to play more bridge. So that was, that was very simple.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
4: What do you most love
3: about bridge? It's the adrenaline rush that I get while playing. Bridge is very physical for me. It's also the social life. I know for sure that I would not be a bridge player if it hadn't been for all the amazing people I've met. I have often, when I play, I get this jolt of happiness that runs through me. Bridge. Gives me something that I haven't been able to find anywhere else in life. What do you mean it's a it's a physical thing? Breach is a physical thing for me because I feel so strongly about it. So all my emotions go into my body. They either they make me um, you know move my legs up and down while I'm playing, or I can sweat and I can feel my heart beats faster if if it's like a kill point or I make some double that's maybe questionable to put it mildly, <laughs> uh, but might work out. Um, All these things, if I play uh, some top players or some in some top matches, very important matches, I just get
1: this rush. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you find that that adrenaline rush helps your game or does it ever get in your way? That's a good question. I think so far it has only helped me.
3: Sometimes I've wondered, you know, before an important match, I could feel that I was nervous and I think I will still always be a bit nervous before something that's really, really important to me, like a final or a semi world semi final. However, I haven't really sensed that the nervousness ever gets to me in a bad way when I'm sitting there playing at the table. It also depends on my role. If I'm in a partnership where I play with a partner I have lots of confidence in, for example, if I play, sometimes I play with Bus Driver, who is um, a Dutch world champion, then I'm very calm. Like I like him to have the first board so we can, you know, if he declares because then I can relax and get into it. But if I'm in a partnership where I feel that I have to be the, you know, the one in control, then I just, I assume that role. And uh, then I am the strong one, (laughs) the partnership, if you can call it that. More pressure. Yes. I think if you really want to be at the top, top level, you have to love the pressure.
4: It's interesting to me that you talk about your love of the competition, but you also are very happy to talk about your emotional connection to the game. And I think one of the issues that often comes up about men and women at top levels of the game is the issue of the extent to which emotions play a role in an ability to compete, the cliche is that men don't engage as much with their emotions. I think that could be unpacked. Nevertheless, it's interesting to me that you're happy to inhabit both spaces in terms of the way that you talk about the game. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I know that there's a notion that when
3: you play bridge, you have to remain calm and focused at the table. And focus, I agree with for sure. Calm, that depends on What calm is to you? Because I think we're all individuals and something works for Michael Rosenberg that doesn't work for me. I need to be able to focus, but also when I have my adrenaline rushes, I get these impulses. Maybe I, I invent some bid before I saw the cards or I saw the auction. I would not have said that I would find this uh, maybe creative moment. Um, but then it just strikes me. And sometimes also with the lead, if I, Find this stunning lead or, you know, something that's very uh, intuitive. And I think that that comes from the passion and the adrenaline that I get while playing. I need to be calm and focused if I'm declaring. I can't be as impulsive. It's something different. Um But there are different aspects of the game. And I've, because my focus used to be my very weak point, also declare a play if you want, like, a, you know, more technical side of it. But my focus is something I've been working with for a long, long time because I am so energetic all the time.
4: I've noticed during the course of these interviews that a lot of the male players, when they talk about areas of the game that they would like to improve, they become quite aware of their demeanour at the table. And really what they're talking about is getting frustrated or there's their expressions of anger, really, which is what frustration is at the table towards their partner. And what I don't think is talked about is that anger or frustration really is an emotion. It's an acceptable male emotion that I think men are actually quite emotional at the table. They just have a whole set of languages and labels that they can call it that doesn't sound like they're being emotional at the table. Whereas women, whenever they express a feeling, suddenly it's all about their emotions. And I just wonder if you felt any pressure to talk about yourself in a particular way or not talk about yourself in a particular way. You seem very happy to talk about your emotional uh, space.
3: I have never thought of bridge as a game without emotions. And if male players have this notion that they don't have a lot of emotions at the table. I think they're just lying to themselves. I have no idea where that comes from. I mean, I've seen close friends that we've all almost got into a fight at the table, uh, which would never happen outside. I think that also for many, sadly, bridge players in general, now I'm not talking about top level, for many players in general, their worst sides come out at the bridge table. For me personally, I think I can be a as bad a partner as anyone can in the right or the wrong moment. But I just think that in general, there are some who are of course worse than others. So I think that Breach is very much a game of emotions. Uh, Zia, he would tell you the same thing because everybody expresses so many feelings and, you know, you can have the self-hatred and you could be so annoyed at the person sitting on the other side of the screen. I was about to say, it doesn't even have to be a screen in between. But you, you experience feelings that you may not for several weeks without playing bridge. You know, the anger and frustration I can feel with my partner. I'm ashamed of it afterwards, but it's sort of a natural feeling. I think some people are capable of always being a good partner, but it's very few. Very few are the exception. I try really hard. I think I'm definitely not, not the worst, but I'm also not the best. It also depends on the situation. But in general, I think that if you always keep in mind that if you make your partner feel comfortable, your partner will be able to perform his or her best, that's important to keep in mind. There is also another thing I'd like to say, because sometimes having the fire is an expression of passion that should not be underrated. I had a partner, and with her former partner, she never really performed well because he was like, Oh, you went for 800? Oh, that's okay, no problem. You know, he didn't care enough, it seemed to her. And I would be like, What? You went for 800? Okay, first of all, you bit like that, but then afterwards, why don't you at least slay it for down 500? You know, it's completely (laughs) stupid. Then I would just have been okay lose two whips, you know, something like that. So we have different ways of being a good partner because sometimes if you're ambitious on your partnership's behalf, that can also help. Of course, you just have to make sure that you're not, that you're not being mean or personal, for example. It has to be general things. And sometimes you also have to remember that the one who has the biggest problems forgiving anyone is the one who makes the mistake.
1: It's not the partner. What can we do to get More women players playing at the very highest echelons of the game. I don't think
3: that we can do anything. I think it's up to the women themselves. I think that they should be more ambitious. Sometimes it's true. It can be harder for women to be asked to play on a, you know, on a, on an open team, which means that maybe we have to fight a bit harder sometimes. If we want to be hired, you know, to play in a big professional team, for example, as a woman, that can be very hard. However, I think that in time you can see that players like Sabine, Alken and Marion Mickelson, some of these women have achieved it. And that is because they have consistently proved themselves. Maybe it takes a little more, but you know what? It never hurt anyone working for something you want to achieve, working for your goals. Actually, I think it just makes you better.
4: What would you say your particular strength is in the game? I used to say bidding, but I'm
3: not sure that that's true anymore. I think it's because when I was less experienced, the way I made points was often through like I have a reputation for redoubling a lot, for being a very aggressive bidder, which is still true. But I think I'm slightly more disciplined in the sense that I used to, for for every five brilliancies I made, I made one disaster. And I feel that the disasters are becoming very rare. You know, maybe it's like one in 10 now. I think that my defense is actually the best part of my game, which is something that most people find uh, the most difficult part. I don't know why, but it's very rare that I don't see what's right. Even if I have a choice where it looks like it's a choice between lesser evils, I somehow I I feel that I almost get it right every time. That's usually also how I make my points if I play like border match or something like that, match points. Yeah.
4: We have a listener who's written into us, Mike from Michigan, who's asked us a question about how the top players visualize the hands. And as best we can, we're going to ask our guests going forward how they visualize the hands. But that's such a crucial element to being a good defender. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Yes, I can. Well, It's very important when you try to visualize the hands, you must always keep the auction in mind. You must always look at the vulnerability, look at what could they have fit that they didn't fit. Try to imagine all these things. And that's actually also a little the case when you're declaring or quite a lot. But as a defender, you always have to look at these things. Also, what did your partner do or not do? Also, if there is a range, you know, always try to count the opponent's hands and sometimes then then you have to say okay could they have opened an 11 count or 13 count what is more likely and also sometimes it's very important that you ask yourself is there a chance if there is only one chance even though it's very unlikely now you have to play ips of course then play for the chance uh sometime if it seems that all hope is lost then
1: go for it anyway It's interesting because you get so much information. You've got the table feel, you've got the bidding, you've got a particular bid that was not made, you've got a card that was not played. It's distilling the important pieces of information in all that information that you're getting in. It sounds like you're able to take in a lot of varied pieces of information, but you're able to recognize what it is that you needed to know. Did you have to? work to bring in all that information into making a visual picture and then honing in on the most critical information? Or do you just look at the whole picture and you see it all? I think that when you talk about
3: talent within bridge, talent is within most areas often just hard work. When you're a very experienced player, you don't need to spend so much energy thinking about what did they bid or not bid and what card did they play and what did they need? Because all these information, you know, like a, you, you're almost like a computer, you know, you, it just works in the background. You don't even have to pay attention to it. It's only when it's like very deep, then you really have to think about all the factors. But a lot of it is like it's on your spine, which makes it a lot easier. I think that's often the difference between like top top experts and just really good, you know, solid club players, etc. because the top experts, they use every clue they have available. I think that a book I once read, it was How to Read Your Opponent's Cards. I don't know why, but it just made such a huge difference for me. It was one of the first rich books I, I read. That's Mike Lawrence? I think so. I think it's like a classic. And for me, a lot of the things I knew already, but some somehow it just worked into me. So That book uh, made a huge difference for me.
4: If we were to ask one of your partners, what would they say your weakest area was in the game?
3: My weakest area in the game, I think personally, is my declarer play. At least when I compare myself to all the players at my level and above, because in many fields, I have a feeling like now we're talking absolute top fields, but then I have a feeling that I will be a weaker declarer technically than many of them. However, then I do have some table feeling that I think works to my advantage. I might not know the odds, but I can smell a queen when I'm if there is any hint of it. <laughs> I can smell the perfume. <laughs> <laughs> I think though, if you ask some of my regular partners what my <laughs> what my weakness is, I think they would say Well I have a partner, bus driver from the Netherlands. He always says to me Christina, just plain normal. If you just play normal, we win. (laughs) So he doesn't like it when I'm too creative. But I think (laughs) I like it when I'm too creative. Sometimes I feel slightly misunderstood by some of my partners. I do try to be more solid, but I think now I can allow myself to be because I'm a better player than I was back in the past. But in the past, I had to be creative. Otherwise, I would never win anything.
4: (laughs) I'm wanting to pick up on something that you said earlier You were talking about how you've developed your focus in the game, and I was wondering how you've done that. Since
3: I started playing, you know, it was very clear from the beginning that if I got a really bad board, I would usually also get a bad board on the following one, because I tried to win it back. And that was definitely a weakness. It can still happen sometimes, but it's very rare now. I also have this thing about sitting still for too long, and when I'm saying sitting still, I... Don't mean in the chair, that can be a problem for me too. But I mean if I have five to seven balanced in five hands in a row, I'm going crazy. And then people tell me, Oh, be patient, be patient. I'm not patient. That's not my thing. So it just drives me crazy if someone tells me to be patient. <laughs> you know, I take the stairs instead of the elevator because I'm not patient, okay? And I I can't spend my life waiting for an elevator. Anyway, our mental coach. He talked about patience and then he found another word for it because like I like to run and I have done a few half marathons, no, not a few. I've done quite a lot of half marathons and I've done one full marathon and endurance is another word for patience. So when we use the word endurance, I connected it with something that was strong instead of patience is, you know, that's too timid for me. So insurance worked for me. And then there was a friend of mine I asked. I said, I don't feel that I'm in the right place. Tell me something. And then he said to me, pretend you're a tiger, you know, hiding, crouching, waiting for its prey. And that has also helped me. So now, even though I have a bad board, I sit there like a tiger, waiting for them
1: to screw up so I can go at their throat. Love it. Love it. (laughs) Have you ever had a non-Bridge experience that affected your game? Something that you read, something that you participated in, or something else? Unlike uh,
3: many Bridge players, I try to maintain uh, a life outside of Bridge. I try to, when I'm home in Denmark, I try to spend a lot of time with non-Bridge playing friends. I also have dreams and goals outside of Bridge. I want to run a marathon and I'm trying to write a book. And I think that however much I love bridge, I think that bridge players who have more than just bridge in their lives are also more interesting. And I also believe that if you take care of yourself, like make sure to do a lot of exercise, it will improve your game. I see a lot of what we call bridge funds in popular phrasing. It's people who are so consumed with bridge that they only are bridge playing friends. They have an unhealthy lifestyle. It's all they've ever done, and I think in the long run, it it may become sort of automatic bridge for you. And I think for me at least, I want more content in my life than just bridge. And I think that also makes me more interesting character. I think
1: also in the long run, run a better player because I won't get fed up with bridge ever. I love that. Do you have a favorite convention or gadget that you really love to play? I
3: do. I love to play weak no-trump when favorable, especially mini no-trump if possible, like a 10 to 13 or something like that. Favorable especially, but otherwise also just weak no-trump when not vulnerable in general, sometimes even vulnerable, because I think it's a good preempt. I really like it and I think people play too much just fifteen seventeen no trap it becomes a little boring to me. I also absolutely love to play two diamonds as multi, a w- one major. It should not be played with a strong version, in my opinion, because some play that is either a weak one major or some strong hand, either with diamonds or balanced or something. Forget about that. Multi is supposed to be destructive. I like conventions that makes life difficult for the opponents. And I think it's the completely ridiculous that multi is not allowed in the US unless you play like, I think it's six plus or seven plus boards. I think it makes no sense because in all other countries, it's very normal and people learn how to defend themselves against it. And I also think that in general, most things in bridge should be allowed. I also think psyching should be completely acceptable as long as there is no partnership agreements that are not disclosed. I think less rules in that sense would suit the game, because um, if we all just play the same the entire time, then <laughs>
1: then it's just about who's the better card player, certainly, which is not necessarily to my advantage. <laughs> and uh, as far as conventions that you really don't care for, it sounds like obviously strong, no Trump, perhaps any others that you just think are a waste of time? Oh, uh, just to be clear, I, I don't think that strong no trump is bad at all. It's just that when
3: everybody plays it, I think it becomes boring. I see conventions that I find not useful at all. I'm, I've never really understood flannery, but there is also, uh, it's like something that they mostly play in Sweden. They play that a two major opening is 10 to 13. And I've so often seen them open two of a major. And then they can have like six in the major and four in a minor and three somewhere else and a void. And then they're called for six clubs. And now they play two hearts making plus 140 because partner doesn't have a fit and isn't good enough to bid something. And it's just, I hate that. And I've seen so many bad words (laughs) and I don't understand why the Swedes are so hooked on playing it.
4: (laughs) What's the best bridge advice or tip that you've ever been given?
3: I think in order to become... Really good at bridge, you have to love the game and not the results. We're all individuals, so what works for me might not work for somebody else. But somebody once said to me that with my talent, dreaming wasn't enough. You have to work hard and you have to read books. So I agree. If you want to really become
1: good at bridge, it takes years of hard work. Christina, thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been such a pleasure.
4: And that's the show. Many thanks to Christina Lund Madsen. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Startz and produced by Daniel Graboy.
1: Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at sorrypartnerpodcast on Instagram or send us a voice message at www.speakpipe.com/sorrypartnerpodcast, and please consider supporting the show. These links are in the show notes and on the website, along with some other good stuff. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice,
4: or we'll call the director. Until next week, play well. May all your finesses be on side, and remember, as Christina says become really good at bridge you have to love the game and not the results thank you partner
1: thank you partner bye
0: <laughs> bye hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter